IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IB Talk, the insurance industry's global podcast. I'm your host, Paul Lucas, and how much are you missing going out, seeing friends, trip to the theatre or the movies amid all of these lockdown restrictions? Uh, one sector that has been massively impacted, of course, is the art market, with galleries and museums largely closed around the world. But what impact is this having on the fine art and species space? To discuss this, and I'm sure a lot more on top of that, I'm delighted to welcome Jennifer Schiff. She is the Global Chief Underwriting Officer for Fine Art and Species at AXA XL. Um, Jennifer, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. I look forward to having a great conversation with you. Um, so Jennifer, I, I naturally want to delve into um, AXA XL and the market in general today, but let's start by familiarizing everyone with you. Um, you've spent more than 12 years now at AXA XL and, and you have a focus on uh, the fine art and species market throughout that time, um, but you really know your stuff, don't you? Because you studied painting at the New York Academy of Arts, you did a, a BA in art history and economics at Georgetown University. Um, tell us about your art fascination and passion. Yes, happily. I've always been interested in the arts since I was quite young, took loads of classes over the years and really found art history to be fascinating. Then as I was graduating, I was trying to decide what does one do with this wonderful art history degree beyond the academic world, and I was surprised to sort of stumble into insurance. Initially, I went to work for an independent adjuster who served the Lloyd's Fine Art and Specie market, and I've been in the industry ever since, so just a bit of good luck, actually. And how much of a, um, an artist are you? Um, will we be seeing any of your work hanging in any galleries? <laughs> Unlikely anytime soon, but I'm definitely an enthusiastic amateur. I do take some continuing education classes from time to time. I love portrait painting, and I'm a, a big fan of trying to continue learning as much as I can, fitting it in around all the other obligations, but mostly just amateur efforts. Do you have a specialism? Um, it really is sort of portraiture. I've taken a number of portraiture classes at the New York Academy of Art, a number of different styles, different instructors, but the live models and the student training they provide is terrific. So now I've gotten to be a big fan of traveling to museums such as the Portrait Gallery in London or the National Portrait Museum in, in D.C. just to see what others are up to, regardless of time and geography. Portraiture doesn't change too dramatically. It's just down to new interpretations. And so some of the um, inaugural portraits of the um, the Obamas, for example, in Washington have been terrific, very different styles, new artists. But that's typically what I tend to look for these days. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, as an art enthusiast, do you own any sort of, you know, amazing pieces yourself? I mean, we, we won't give out your address if you say you own an original <laughs> Monet. I like to think they're amazing. I tend to collect works on paper. They're certainly a little more approachable, but they're also quite fun because you can see the detail a little bit more in terms of the renderings. But I've got a, I've got a couple pieces by some of the contemporary American portrait artists, Eric Fischel and Alex Katz. Those are probably among my favorites. Yeah, sounds amazing. And, and and I imagine there are probably people listening to this in the insurance sector who think that you know, you're exactly the sort of person that we want more of in the industry. You know, somebody who has a, a real enthusiasm for a specific area who can then transfer that passion and enthusiasm 
into insurance. So, I mean, obviously you mentioned how you got into the business there, but you know, how did insurance in general attract you? Because wasn't it a little bit off-putting to be, you know, somebody <laughs> with such a great art background to sort of move into this sector? It certainly wasn't very closely aligned, that's to be sure. I definitely had a genuine interest in business, hence the, the minor in economics. It was just of interest to me, and I found that I learned a lot about history, culture, politics, and sociology through that economic lens. And I had been looking for a while, uh, looking for ways to try to merge the two. Obviously, the obvious answer in commercial terms for art is a gallery or an auction house. But they, um, I found, were pretty specific in the types of artists that they represented or sold in galleries. And the auction market was a bit more transactional, a little less academic. So I kept interning around the industry trying to find the happy medium. And as it turned out, when I stumbled into insurance through a family friend, it seemed like a wonderful combination of knowing, needing to know a lot about art, the media, the way in which art was created, the materials and what to do with it, how to protect it, and how to repair it and, and conserve and protect it in future. So it really turned out unintentionally or unexpectedly to be a wonderful hybrid of two very different extremes. And, and when you look at your job on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis, what would you sort of pull out as the highlights for you? Well, I definitely think one of the highlights is having the great opportunity to work with our art prize and some of the schools around the United States and the young emerging artists, because it's a connection that we didn't have before. It's difficult to get to know emerging artists unless you're really actively in the art field. So that's definitely one of the highlights. And we're in the process of talking to some colleagues in other regions about ways we might expand that AXA art prize into the UK and possibly Europe or even beyond into Asia. So that's definitely a highlight because it's the most direct contact I have with the young people creating art today. Yeah, sounds like a, a great initiative. And and on the subject of AXA Excel, of course, AXA Excel did um, hit the, the headlines recently in the UK with its decision to sell um, the UK private client's business to Aviva. But I understand that won't have any impact on the fine art and species markets uh, around the world in terms of your offering. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. The action really was related very specifically to the private client business, which is underwritten in the UK. And the decision doesn't have any impact on our fine art and specie business in either the UK or worldwide. And while we do continue to support and cover private collections, that's quite distinct from that private client packaged offering of multiple product lines. So, so it really doesn't affect us at all, either in the UK or globally. You're right. So how big a part then does fine art and specie play in the AXA Excel business? It's a substantial part of our specialty portfolio, which um, has undergone some transformation in terms of how products are grouped. And it's always been a profitable line of business for us. We continue to maintain sort of underwriting central hubs in New York, in London, throughout European offices, as well as in Hong Kong and Singapore. So we're very much committed to maintaining the business and, and hopefully seeing it grow. Despite all the changes at present, it continues to be an important focus within the company and in terms of growth opportunities for us. 
Well, let's let's have a look at sort of the the bigger picture then, because I, I imagine there've been a, a lot of changes um, in the market over the course of the year, especially on the back of of COVID nineteen. I mean, and I suppose in in theory um, there might be more claims because some of the buildings that house fine art, for example, have been left empty and therefore uh, more susceptible to to crime due to a you know a lack of security and so on. But then. On the flip side, there might be fewer claims because art isn't being transported to, to furs and auction houses so often, and there's and perhaps less risk of damage if people aren't able to get so close to the art. Um, so how has COVID-19 impacted claims? It's true. In, in all of those ways, we've been um, affected to different extent. And I would group it into sort of two different categories. One was the initial lockdown period, the scramble as TAFAF was closing early, just about this time a year ago, we had active dealers and um, participating collectors in Maastricht at the art fair when the decision was unfortunately taken to close early. So that was an unusual event in that everybody was scrambling to get back home, wherever home was. And for anyone who's ever attended TAFAF Maastricht's not the most readily accessible destination. So people were trying to unravel their exit plans and trying to accelerate their departure strategies. So calling the packers and shippers, calling the external vendors, the facilitators and partners to try to get everything out of the country sooner and then back to wherever it had originally originated. There was a lot of that early phase activity where people were navigating the unknown. But I think as soon as people had an indication that there was going to be a somewhat extended period of lockdown and lack of mobility, although no one imagined it would last this long, then I think we moved into kind of the the new COVID normal. And in that, you're exactly right. We did anticipate much higher claims activity for fear of some of the security concerns, the lack of occupancy, the changing flow of visitorship. And there were one or two early claims at unattended museums, but they were quickly mitigated and they were minimized. And with such low uh, visitor activity at the museums, in theory, the, the protection actually improved or rather the likelihood of loss diminished because we didn't have as much handling, we didn't have as much transactional activity for the artworks. And similarly, the galleries weren't shipping as much art either. So with that reduced activity, we actually found um, that claims were relatively flat, if not a little bit less than they'd historically been. And then we kind of moved into what became the gallery and museum world's alternative business models, so to speak. And a lot of the museums quickly rushed to the digital atmosphere to try to share collections or temporary exhibitions on the um, in the virtual space, which I think was really wonderful. And everyone's sad to not be there in person, but it's provided a wonderful alternative accessibility avenue for the museums. And then the galleries too, they actually... They actually changed and pivoted, as everyone likes to say, their business model. The art fairs are not inexpensive to attend. So without all the travel expense, lodging, flights, and and fees for exhibiting at the art fairs, they found themselves, I think, readily and enthusiastically diverting those budgets to the digital platform. And online sales have definitely increased over the last year. The auction houses are doing rather well despite fearful predictions to the contrary. And a number of galleries are continuing to find 
different ways to connect with our clients and to still sell despite lockdown. Yeah, well, talk to us a, a little bit more about those sort of uh, changes that we're seeing in, in the commercial art market, because um, like you said, there are so many more digital offerings now in the same way that you know the likes of you and I have probably gone Zoom and Teams crazy of late. Auction houses and galleries have, have, have been going virtual too. Um, what sort of increased risks does this bring? I mean, I assume there, there might be cyber risks that come into the equation here. There most definitely are. And while our fine art and species collectibles policies don't typically offer the extensive, exhaustive cyber product, there are certainly cyber markets. Ours is one and there are many others. But there is um, there is additional risk there. And I think the increased transactional volume has created greater scrutiny on that cyber exposure. But then in some regards, there's also the traditional flight of geographic location and positioning. A number of galleries have switched to new venues in Miami or Palm Beach, for example. They're always a bit busier in those cities during the winter months when it's not as warm and not as conducive to being out and about up north or in other areas. But because a lot of people have relocated to those cities and to Florida as one example, due to COVID, children are schooling from home remotely, parents are working remotely. There is now a geographic transition, sort of that, that urban flight to other cities that are more attractive or more uh, a little more open during COVID. So galleries have taken on some new spaces in Palm Beach. Inventories are up compared to this time last year. And that presents a number of different challenges. Just tracking the mobility is one piece of it. And then the insurance, the industry favorite of sort of tracking natural catastrophe exposures. We're not in wind season now, but certainly we'll be closely watching what our clients are doing towards March, April and May as, as wind season approaches, because we may find that we've got increased exposures this year over last year, just based on that COVID flight pattern. It sounds like a, a little bit of a, a risk management minefield. Um, yes. <laughs> how, how, yeah. How, how, how have insurers operating in this space been affected? Because I, I'm guessing, I mean, are the policy changes being made because of COVID? There are some. I think the most dramatic change to policy language is one that's universal to the industry, not specific to fine art and species. And that's around the contagious disease exclusion and the limited coverages. And it really is down to contract certainty, that favorite old subject. It, it's not so much about any particular peril, but it's arisen because of COVID. And so now it's really down to making sure we're all very clear on what is and what is not covered. There's clearly been a great deal of coverage in the trade press and, and in general about some of the business interruption claims. But I think a bit like COVID for Lloyd's these days, they're very active and ongoing discussions about making sure that all parties to contracts are clear on what's being offered and what is not intended as, as covered. And, and talk to us about sort of broker involvement here. I mean, what sort of challenges have, have brokers who are operating in this space uh, faced over the last 12 months? And, and, and maybe you can give us some, some recommendations on how they can address some of those challenges. Sure. I think the greatest challenge brokers have faced is the same type of challenge the rest of the industry, if not beyond. And it's around sort of employee engagement and accessibility, flexibility in the remote working. 
There are some brokers who still operate with a great deal of paper, and when they can't get into their office to check their files and reference their records for their clients, it makes it a little more difficult to service as it usually more so than it had been. And yet I think that now that we're a year on, most everyone's found ways to navigate this or they've they've come up with interim procedures. And so then it really is back to just being responsive to client needs. And I think in that regard, we think of it in three different areas as it relates to the three general client types in our space. And those are institutional, the museums, they're certainly hardest hit. They were often not-for-profits with very limited budgets to begin with. And they're thinking about how they address different challenges in future. For example, there are ongoing discussions in that sector about couriers and the transit of artwork. Do we still need individual human transits across oceans on airliners with expensive tickets to, to relocate and lend artworks? And there's some great work, great dialogue going on between a lot of the industry leaders or the, the institutional leaders about how they deal with that, how they increase visitorship. Um, so the brokers, I think, are along for the ride with them and just trying to be as creative and responsive as possible. And I think in the collector space and the commercial dealer space, business is a little bit more as usual without that um, without that shortfall of revenue and support from visitors, they're able to, I think the commercial dealers are better able to respond to the sales interest. And all of that's because I think collectors have found new interests. There's a great deal of enthusiasm more than ever about esoteric collectibles, whether it's jewelry, watches, or even art. There is a great deal more activity now than there was prior to COVID at a higher price point. I think the auction houses are finding a lot more interest by collectors to be buying objects that they've not seen. The digital imagery is so much better now so that I think clients, after many years of transacting everything other than their art buying online, whether it's banking to purchasing other high value objects, now people are a little more comfortable with with art online and i think the sales records are bearing out that greater comfort so the commercial side is doing well and i think i heard one person um, refer to some of their clients as building their quote unquote covid collections they're home they're not traveling they don't have as many places to to go they're not spending the same amount on travel internationally so suddenly they're looking at art a little bit differently and with more with more material available, I think there's, um, or rather more digital mediums to access different material, there's a lot more collecting going on. In fact, some of the some of the auction houses have been noted as in need of higher quality content. We're not missing buyers, but good quality content for some of the sales seems elusive, excuse me, seems elusive in some cases. So there's definitely momentum and there's definitely demand. So it's not the case then that, you know, sort of not being able to go to galleries has sort of seen interest in, in art drop off. It's it's actually been the opposite. Lockdown has, has sparked more interest in art. I think that's right. I think that the art fairs have done a wonderful job in creating the online viewing rooms. Uh, earlier, or excuse me, later last year, there was a new venture called Art City, which created these almost sort of 3D virtual reality tours 
of galleries in situ. So a gallery in London could have their their space filmed and put onto the Art City platform. And if you hovered over their building on this virtual art gallery map of a of a of a mock city, you could be entering different galleries across the world. Our art prize was featured, which was wonderful. So we were able to bring the American art students featured in the art prize to an international global audience. I think that's the other key distinction. The digital offering in that virtual interface has actually broadened everybody's ability to participate where they wouldn't have been able to perhaps go to Hong Kong to an art fair a year or two ago. Suddenly they're at home virtually participating in something that's brand new to them. So the opportunities have increased. Yeah, it's it's amazing how uh, virtual has, has sort of taken over our lives and, and and been so successful. But what what do you think the future is going to look like for for museums and galleries? Do you think they will be able to to make a full recovery from the pandemic? I think they will in time. I think it's going to be slow, and I do. I'm very concerned about the museums because they are they are reliant on the the charity of many of their members, their board members, government grants. There's obviously a great deal of economic strain in general in all regions, in all countries, and that will have and it is having an adverse effect on institutions around the world. But I think in time it will come back because there is this craving for cultural content, a a craving for an educational opportunity in an area that people love, such as art. So I think that it will come back. It's just a question of when, and I fear there may be some unfortunate casualties in the short term. There have been some surveys among institutions that have said they, they're quite concerned either for themselves or for fellow institutions and their genuine concerns about long-term closures. But I think there will be a great amount of enthusiasm. And I heard one person in the travel sector refer to it as pent-up revenge travel. And I think there will be pent-up cultural demand and revenge culture seeking going on as people find ways to participate and get out after being at home for for so very long. And and what about you? How much are you looking forward to being able to go to a gallery again? Oh, I can't wait. In fact, when... um, when one of the galleries, one of the museums in Italy shut down last year, they put their they put their new exhibition online. And I thought the first thing I'm going to do the minute this is over is I'm going straight to that institution, which I probably wouldn't have visited very easily otherwise. So I think it's I'm getting ideas along the way from all this great virtual content, but very excited to get back to it, museums and galleries and art fairs alike. Yeah, and, and and away from the pandemic just for a moment. Um, I mean, what would you say are the other sort of perhaps key risks or key issues that that brokers or, or risk managers, even operating in this space, need to be thinking about now that perhaps are, are not COVID themed? I think that the the virtual opportunities we've been discussing will transcend borders. So I think that brokers might need to be more aware and a little bit better educated than they've needed to be in the past about cross-border issues, about cross-border transactions. In theory, someone in Hong Kong can hop on the website more easily than ever of a Parisian gallery, purchase a piece and ask for it to be shipped home. I think there will be obviously some fallout from Brexit around what collectors are doing beyond their um, their location in London, how they're buying abroad. So I think that it's been ironic to see that originally in COVID, 
there was sort of this localization and, and far away places seemed a little more remote and, and less relevant. But now because of the virtual connectivity reestablishing itself, I think we're going to be reconnected in the brokers and the risk managers are going to have some geographic borders and some regulatory boundaries to navigate in a new way in the future. Yeah, of course, you're not just um, looking forward to get back back to a gallery. I'm guessing you, you're probably also looking forward to uh, being able to to head towards the the mountains and the hills because you're a, you're a keen skier. Am I right? I'm an enthusiast. I'm not sure that I'm particularly good, but I enjoy it greatly. And that has definitely been one of the most difficult difficult issues of COVID, just not being able to get around and about. I, I enjoy usually a few different ski trips in different countries, and it really is a passion beyond the art. So it will be very nice when we're not quite as restricted and confined and we can get out and get to the fresh air of the mountains. Absolutely. So where's the best place that you've been skiing? Oh, gosh. Um, well, this year I was able miraculously to get out to Colorado, which was astounding. It felt like a unicorn of a holiday just to be able to get out and go somewhere. But I do enjoy Europe quite, quite a good deal. Courchevel and Courmayeur are on the top of my list for a lot of a lot of different reasons. The people, the food, the culture, the skiing, the snow. I've got a lot of favorites, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and is it really the skiing that attracts you or is it more the uh, the ski life? It's a great question. I've got, I've got friends who sit in both camps and fortuitously I'm somewhere in between. I love a nice lunch, but I certainly don't mind getting up and out on the early side earlier or lately um, to just get out into the fresh air, see the mountains and try to find some new terrain I've not seen before. It's squarely a bit of both. Uh, Jennifer, it's, it's been fantastic to have you join us. Um, thank you very, very much for shedding light on the market for us today. And if anybody wants to, to reach out on the back of this talk, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I would certainly welcome interaction and happily answer questions. I think probably the easiest way is via email. And my address is just jennifer.schiff, S-C-H-I-P-F at axaxl.com. Super. Jennifer, thank you very much for your time again. Um, to everybody listening, thank you for joining us. And we'll talk to you next week on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.